My name is Kyle Crowell. I am the new high school minister here at Harmony Hill. I've been here for about two and a half months, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. My wife, Brandy, my four kids, we are enjoying our new chapter of life here in Lufkin, Texas. And no surprise to you, but I'm finding that I'm serving the Lord alongside an excellent group of students, an excellent group of volunteers who invest in the next in student ministry and just outstanding staff, the people I work with. I love coming to work every day. Um, It's just been a tremendous joy, and I want to thank Pastor Todd for the opportunity for allowing me to share this morning. Uh, I love the opening video uh, because it zeroes in on the main points of our passage this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2 if you want to go ahead and flip there in your Bible or get your phone out and scroll the Bible app there. Uh, One of the things that highlights is the the visitation of the Magi or the wise men uh, to to the baby Jesus or the infant Jesus, the child Jesus. And then the second thing is the importance of seeking the Lord and how that reflects in our own worship of him. Now, when I want to just confess to you guys right now that I have not um, preached a sermon in several years. And when I mentioned that to the staff, several of them just told me, they said, I don't worry about it. It's like riding a bicycle. You'll be fine. And that, and that caused me to remember the last time that I rode a bicycle, which the back wheel came off, and then, and then I turned into like this giant human road rash. It was my first day of college. So what could go wrong, right? It's going to be a great morning. So let's go ahead and dive into the text this morning. Uh, when we talk about the, the visitation of the Magi or the coming of the wise men, to see Jesus. It's significant today because where it falls in on our church calendar, you know, Joel talked about this is the, this is the last Sunday, 23, and we're looking forward to 24. Uh, and, and I could do that. I mean, I could get up here and be like, New Year, New You, you know, and I just said, you know, what's going on in the church calendar? And not Harmony Hill Church. I'm talking about capital C Church, and what that means is the people who worship God as king or are invested in seeing his kingdom come on earth all over the entire world. Well, what's going on in the church calendar is that we are just dab in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, we've been doing this for like since the fourth century, but we take these, these 12 days to recognize the importance of the birth of Christ coming into the world. Because you see, the 12 days of Christmas is not just a fun um, song that we sing about some really ridiculous gifts. Here, have a swan. Uh, but it's, it's about this idea that celebrating the birth is more than a day. We don't just anticipate the birth in Advent and then celebrate on Christmas, but we continue on that celebration that culminates in a day that's important for our passage today that we know as Epiphany, which is January 6th or this coming Saturday. And what Epiphany is, it's the, it's the celebration of when the wise men or when the Magi visited Jesus in his home. And see, the reason why we celebrate all of this in the first place is because if Jesus had not come to earth, we would still be lost in darkness and in sin. We would be strangers to God and enslaved to death. But he did come, and by his grace, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, he has awakened us from death into life in him. And so today is just in the middle of the celebration of that, that we have life in Christ. Epiphany is the day that tradition, tradition recognizes the wise man visiting, 
But really what it was, it was the day that Jesus revealed himself to the Gentiles, the people who were not Jews. And it signifies that Jesus has come to the entire world. Epiphany, if you want to know what it means, it means sudden understanding. If you're following along in your, in your worship guide, it's a literary term, and it, and it literally means that, that there's this, this revelation that suddenly it comes to you. It, if I were to think about this in a way that most of us would get, it would, if you've seen the film Back to the Future, Doc Brown has an epiphany on November 5th, 1955, when he's repairing his bathroom and he falls and he hits his head and he envisions the flux capacitor, which makes time travel possible. Anybody tracking with me? I've never seen the movie. Uh, If you need a more modern reference, maybe some of you really gravitate toward the film Mean Girls, and this is when... Katie has the idea of that the limit does not exist. It's an epiphany, right? It comes to them suddenly, and now they have this wisdom and understanding that they didn't have before. Church tradition reveals to us that the Magi had walked and approached to Jesus, and they had this sudden understanding that he was the king, and they worshiped him. But as we're going to look at the text this morning, church tradition has a lot to say about the wise men. But sometimes what church tradition says and what the text actually says are not the exact same thing. So follow with me and we'll see who exactly has an epiphany in our story today. Matthew chapter 2, in Matthew's gospel, he tells us about, in chapter 1, he tells us about Jesus' lineage. And then he talks about how angels appeared to people to announce the birth of Christ. And we've been talking this about the last several weeks about these angels show up and they tell people announcing the birth of Christ. This is important to Matthew because he wants us to know as readers several things about Jesus. This is that one, he's more than just a person. He is the promised Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. He is the Savior. He's going to be the one who brings about salvation to all people and that also that Jesus is Emmanuel. That, that word literally means God with us, that Jesus has come to live among us. So that's in chapter 1, and then chapter 2 starts off with this story. So follow along, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now I'm going to take a humorous aside here. And just notice that this is the point where we really know that they are wise men because they stopped to ask for directions. (laughs) Ladies, am I right? I love reading the room right now because all of the men are like, you have betrayed us all. All right, and some of you are like, what are directions? Why wouldn't you just ask Siri? Anyway, all right, let's get back into the text. Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And then they quoted Micah, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. Then Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. He told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. 
After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy, and they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. As you can tell, there's a lot going on in this story, and in fact, there are many things in this story that we didn't get to today. This is not a fun story. It, there's, there's a lot going on. There's, there's political intrigue, there's deception, and Matthew expands on what's going on on these political machinations of Jesus' early life in the rest of chapter 2. If you want to know what's going on, I encourage you to read that. But the main focus of what we just read is not what's going on, but it's about the different reactions to Jesus. But before we get to those reactions, I want to clear up a few misconceptions about things that are going on with the story, particularly about the Magi. The first one is that when did the Magi visit Jesus? Now, on a lot of our nativity sets and on our Christmas cards, we have these pictures of Mary and Joseph in, in, the, in the stable, and there's the manger, and then the shepherds on one side, and there's the, the Magi or the wise men on the other side, and they're all presenting their gifts to Jesus in the manger. But Matthew tells us that this picture that we depict often is not accurate. Because one, the word that Matthew uses to describe Jesus is not infant. He uses a different word, and the word is child. What this implies is that Jesus is not baby, baby Jesus. He's just baby Jesus, if that makes sense. If it doesn't, I'll explain later. Um, the Magi came after Jesus was born in, in the stable, mostly for a couple points. One is the word that Matthew used, and the second one is that if you notice, they visited Jesus in a house, not in a stable. And so what this leads many scholars to conclude is that there was some length of time from when Jesus was born to when the Magi showed up that could actually be up to even two years later. So it's not necessarily this Jesus was born and the next day the kings, the wise men showed up. And the second thing is, who are they? There's misconceptions here too because I just called them kings, and that's just what pervades our understanding of them. The song, We Three Kings, says that they're kings. But the reality is there was nothing about them that had any, any nobility at all. They were not political rulers, but what they were, they were a, a group of people who were set aside as scholars and advisors to people who were in charge. This group of people, they would have studied uh, astronomy and astrology and philosophy and medicine and prophecy and dream interpretation. And what their role was, to, was would be to help whoever's in charge make wise decisions. They were Gentiles, but we can see here that they were familiar enough with the Old Testament about the prophets that foretelling the birth of the king of the Jews. We see that in verse 6. Now, how did they know that? We don't know for sure. But we do know that they did interact with faithful Hebrews like Daniel. See, in the, in the history of, of God's people, he delivered them from the Egyptians and gave them a land. We call that land the land of Israel. It's the same land that it is today. And that was God's special promise to them. But the thing is, they rebelled. They were, they were very cavalier with their understanding of God. They worshipped other gods. And finally, God removed his protection from them. Nations came in and hauled them off, and they went into exile. But in this time of exile, there were some Jews that were still faithful to the Lord, and they stood up for him, and they walked lives of faith. 
And some of them you can read about like in the book of Daniel. Daniel was one of these guys I'm talking about because Daniel was also an advisor to the kings. He would have been a magi. At some point in time, they would have overlapped and they would have communicated with each other. And Daniel could have said, hey, are you aware about these prophetic books that we have in our scriptures? All right? And so that's, that's really who they were is that they were advisors. And then we also know from like public understanding that there were three of them, right? There's always three of them. And I suspect some of this is because it just ties in with the three gifts. It's real easy to depict them. One of them holds gold. One of them holds frankincense, not Frankenstein. One of them holds frankincense. And then the other one holds myrrh, and we can depict three of them. The other reason why I think we depict three is because the reality is it was probably a much larger group. You didn't travel in the ancient Near East in small groups. It was very dangerous. Um, there were bandits, there were wild animals, all sorts of things. And so there would have been a large group of people. But the reality is, I don't have enough, like, space on my mantle for, like, 25 kings. You know, and I'm sure you don't either. So we just round it down to three. But the reality is, Matthew doesn't tell us how many there were. Uh, but we do know who they were, that they weren't kings. And then how did they get to Bethlehem? I don't know. But they went on an adventure. I can tell you that. Because I've always wondered about the parts of the story that we never get. When I read scripture, often what I think and what I go to is, what happened here that we don't know? And this is one of those places because the scripture says these wise men, they showed up. But the reality is they traveled a, a journey of over 500 miles through really inhospitable climate. They would have had wild animals to deal with. They would have had bandits to deal with. They would have had hardships. Maybe their, their horse or their camel ran off. I mean, all kinds of things that made it difficult. And I just wonder, like, what was that journey like? At some point, were any of them, or one of them even, just going, you know what, this is really hard. This isn't worth it. I don't know what we expect to find, but I'm going to go back home where it's, like, more comfortable. But they didn't. They persevered on. And what's really cool about this is they had an adventure. And I don't know about you, but like one of the things that is hard for me to do is find something that all of my family members like to agree, that we all like to do together. It's just really difficult. There's a lot of us. And, but one of the things that, that we uh, enjoy doing is going on adventures together. And one of the things that we have found is that national parks tend to be more adventurous than like a theme park. And so we spend a lot of our time going to national parks and having adventures. Some of them are not that great. I don't know if you've ever been to like Petrified Forest National Park, but it's like in the prairie and you just drive around and you can see where the trail ends. Like before you get out of your car, you're like, we're just walking over there. And it's like, it's just this flat prairie land and there's some colored rocks and it's great. I'm not trying to diss on it. I'm just telling you, it's not very adventurous. It's beautiful scenery. But then there are other times where we went to different national parks. Like, I don't know how many of you have been to Mesa Verde National Park, right? But what it is, it's this, um, it's this area where indigenous people had built their homes in the side of a cliff. There's this canyon. It's like 450 feet deep. And about 150 feet down in the side of this canyon, they had like built an entire village, and that's where they lived. And so you can go to this national park and take a tour of this village. And so we're like, all right, let's do this. And we get out, and it's all great. There's like this solid steel staircase all the way down. You just walk down the side of the canyon, down this nice flight of stairs. There's a handrail, like nothing to worry about. This is super cool. Walk through the whole thing, and you're like, wow, it's a long way down. There's no handrails where they live. This is a really dangerous place. Why would you choose to live here? And we're all getting through it because like 
All my kids are staying safely away from the railing. I'm like, this is great. We're going to get out here. It's awesome. And we turn the corner to, to go back out, and there is no staircase there. Any of you who have been there, you know what I'm talking about because you come around the corner, and what there is is there is a 32-foot uh, double-wide wooden ladder. There's no, like, safety net. There's no harness. There's no ropes, nothing. And, like, I asked the tech team how high this ceiling is right here, and they said it's 28 feet. So even higher than that, there's this ladder, and it's just pitched at like a 75-degree angle. And then to make things even worse is that you're, you know, 300 feet up in the air. So you, you look down, and you're not looking down where you would actually fall. You, you're looking down like 300 feet below. So it's like this, like, wait, is this safe? And I want to tell you, it is one of the least safe things that I've ever done in like a commercial like setting in any way possible. I'm like, how do they, like, we paid money for this. How do they get away with this? Because I can't envision that there's not every single day somebody falls off this ladder. And as somebody who, I used to, I used to work at a ropes course, and I used to work, like, in, with, in the tree industry where I like, climb up into trees and, like, trim your trees and do all that stuff. So I'm pretty used to heights, and I'm like, this is pretty risky. But I'm like, I'll handle it. I'll be fine. And then I realized that I'm with my family. And, like, at the time, my youngest, my daughter, she was, like, four years old somewhere around there, and she's got to climb this ladder all the way to the top, and I'm like, okay, let's go here, let's do this, and I won't tell you who, but one member of my family is, like, terribly afraid of heights, and so this was, like, not even, this was, like, we are never, ever, ever doing this again. It's like, I know, we're not ever doing this again, but, you know, we're going to do it right now, and we're going to live through this, and we're going to have this incredible bonding moment with us as a family, and sure enough, we all did it, but there were times I was like, how is this going to work, because, you know, I'm having to climb a ladder, but, like, my kids are having to, like, raise their feet really high. And, I mean, it's, it's a big gap for them. But we fought through it, and we had this amazing accomplishment together. Now, I don't know if the wise men had to climb a wooden ladder or not, but they did choose to go on an adventure to meet with Jesus. The text says that they followed a star and journeying from what would be modern-day Iran, they went all the way to Israel seeking the Christ child. And when Matthew says star in his day and time, that language literally meant any light that would appear in the night sky. It's not necessarily our understanding in modern times of what a star is, that it's like this superheated gas and this spherical shape that burns and blah, blah, blah. Okay, It is just a light in the sky is what he refers to. And they, the Magi, they saw something in the sky, some astronomical occurrence up in the stars, and they said, that's new. Let's, and they interpreted it as a sign, and they followed it. And so it appeared to them in the west. We read from the text. It appeared to them from the west. They went all the way to Jerusalem. When they got there, they found out that they were supposed to go to Bethlehem. So the star then, in turn, went from there. Bethlehem is southeast of, of Jerusalem. It's about five, six miles away the star then appeared not in the west, but in the southeast, and led them again to where Jesus was. So the light went from being in the western sky to the southeastern sky. In preparation for this morning, guys, I've read lots of theories about what did they actually see, and I learned all kinds of stuff about how to backwards calculate the astral positions of stellar bodies, and about the triple conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and the constellation Pisces, and about double lunar eclipses, and all sorts of really interesting celestial experiences that happened uh, around the birth of Christ. 
Um, but the point is, as much as I would love to explain that to you, you would love to hear it explained to you, but I'm not going to do that this morning because the point is we don't know what the Magi saw. Could it have been some naturally occurring cosmic event? Yes. Could it have been a supernatural star that God put in the sky to guide them? Yes. Could it have been a light in the sky that only the Magi saw and no one else did? Yes. God is capable of leading them through all of those things. The important thing to note is that the wise men were paying attention to God's activity. They were alert, and when they saw God at work, they reacted to it. So now that we've dealt with some of the misconceptions about the Magi, we should remember that Matthew doesn't draw our attention to who they were or to what the star was doing or why they went to Bethlehem. It focuses rather on the birth of Jesus and on the ways that people reacted to, the, to Jesus as he entered human history. Because no sooner than Jesus entered the world, people had a diverse way of reacting to him. In some ways, they had an ironic way of reacting to him. But people continue to have these same reactions throughout Jesus' life, and people continue to have these reactions to Jesus today. In some ways, this passage is like a mirror. It reflects what's going on in our hearts. And so we need to pay attention to these reactions that occurred in this passage. The first one was from Herod. I would say Herod's reaction was hostile to Jesus. When he heard that the king of the Jews had been born, he became, as the text said, troubled. And so he launched a plan to find the baby so that you'll find out later in the chapter so that he could destroy him. Um, because Herod's desire was to have no rivals. It's like maniacal zealotry, to be sure, and it really emphatically illustrated just the way Herod approached his entire life. Now, why was Herod so hostile? It's because he had been appointed by Caesar to be the regent of Israel. He was supposed to be the king of the Jews, and there's only room for one king, and so in order for him to stay king, he had to eliminate his rival. Have you ever considered yourself being hostile to the King Jesus? I will tell you that there was a time in my life where I was, and it's no coincidence that at this period in my life of my greatest hostility towards Jesus, where I just really embraced anything that denied that God existed or that the Bible was real, the Bible had anything to say into our lives, that that period of time coincided exactly with a period of my own insistence that I was the capable master of my own life and that I knew what I was doing. I was going to be the king of me because I like living accountable to no one. And it's only when my own way failed to bring me any meaning or any peace or any just contentment that I began to be open to the ideas of the reality of God and that he has things to say to me into his word. And as I began to explore that, God brought me on this journey toward him into knowing him. And through that experience, I will tell you guys this, that surrendering our will is hard. And if we are unwilling to surrender to the true king, then we will be hostile towards him. The second reaction that we see is from the scribes and the, and the priests. And their reaction isn't hostility, but it's indifference. And this is tragic because these were the spiritual leaders of Israel. 
The chief priest oversaw the worship in Jerusalem in the temple, and they were trained experts and understand the meaning and application of the law. The scribes were in cho- were, were, their duty was to copy God's word perfectly in every way so that it could be reproduced and that other people could have access to it. These men knew the Old Testament by heart. When Herod asked them about the arrival of the Messiah, of the Savior, and where he would be born, they didn't go and look it up. They knew it. They had it memorized. They just rattled off Micah chapter 5. But the thing is, the fulfillment of the Old Testament arrives and they didn't go to see him. Isn't that fascinating? In no way do they make any efforts at all that Matthew indicates to go find out if this is true. Now, why didn't they? I don't know. We, again, we're just speculating here, but maybe it's because they had priestly scribed things to do. Maybe they were busy doing temple services or preparing lectures about Old Testament prophecy. Maybe they were just getting ready for worship, being a scribe and a priest. But these things in and of themselves are not wrong, but when the focus of these legitimate things makes them indifferent to the most important thing, it's tragic. Let me explain it this way, how something like this would happen, because the coming of the Messiah was the fulfillment of everything in the Jewish um, understanding and faith, their faith experience. They were anticipating the day that God would send the Messiah to make everything right. All of the Old Testament law leans on this, right? And then they hear that the Messiah has come, and they just like, yeah, whatever. Let me put it in a way that we would understand today, because in the New Testament, we too anticipate a day when everything is going to be made right. It's when Jesus comes back the second time, and he appears in all of his glory, and he's going to make everything right. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye, and we will be with him, and we'll see him, not through a glass darkly, but face to face. Guys, I'm looking forward to that day, and I know that many of you are as well. But it would be like in this story, if someone walks through those doors right there and they say, and I'm guessing something that's about five miles away, something like the Lufkin Zoo. Hey, at the Lufkin Zoo, I heard this loud trumpet and I saw this host of angels in the sky and there were all of these other signs that the New Testament prophecies promises us that's going to happen when Jesus returns. And we go, well, that's cool, but we got church to do. And every one of us just sits here. And we don't look forward and just, well, maybe, what if, what if they're right? Maybe if Jesus did come back, should we go find out? But instead, we're like, eh. I mean, we're already here and something will happen anyway. So the thing is, why would they do this? As far as we know, their heads were full of knowledge of God, but their hearts were empty of love for him. And that is the great commandment found both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is to love God and his people with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. So Jesus shows up, and his people don't care. And that's why John wrote in his gospel in chapter 1, he said, He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The real irony of this story, or how the church traditionally tells this story, is that the Magi were the ones who had this epiphany, this sudden understanding when they walked in the house and they saw the baby Jesus, and they're like, oh, he's the king. Um, but that's not how Matthew tells us this story at all. If we actually go in the text, is that there is an epiphany in this story about the nature of Jesus, but it's not from the Magi. It's from Herod and the people of Jerusalem. It says they were deeply distressed. 
Herod felt this sudden threat and immediately started to scheme to get rid of it. But there was, here's the thing, guys, there's no epiphany, there's no sudden insight from the Magi at all. They had prepared to seek God, and they were prepared to worship Him. They announced their intentions to Herod when they arrived in Jerusalem. They said, we are seeking the King of the Jews, and we have come to worship Him. They brought gifts with them. They, they went on a long journey. It wasn't sudden. They were seeking God, and when they sought Him, then they worshiped Him. And that's the other response that we can have to Jesus, is to worship Him. Because, yes, there's another tragedy here as well, that these men who had the least amount of knowledge of God found Him when those who had the most knowledge about Him didn't. And I, for one, am grateful that God works this way. Because it's not so much that they found God as much that God took extraordinary measures to lead them to Jesus. God reached out to them through their passion of watching the stars to give them a sign. And when they got guidance from God, they didn't ignore it. They acted upon it and then got even more guidance. And God guided them right to the feet of Jesus, right into his very presence. What's really interesting about the story to me is that not, Matthew tells us who these men were. We know very little about them, but he emphasizes what they did. Again, twice in this passage, they announced their intentions. We have come to worship him and it brings me to mind of two promises of God from Scripture, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. First one is Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me, God, and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And then the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The Magi had a desire to worship, and when they made it a priority, they saw God. And this has been my prayer for you for this morning, is that wholeheartedly you would seek God with all of your heart and worship him as Savior and as Emmanuel, that God with us, that he is here, he is present because he chose to come and be born and then to save us. And so this is the, this is the part of the message where now that we've explained it, that I, I like to call the so what. what are, that, was, that was a bunch of knowledge, but what do we do with it? How do we respond to God? What does God want us to ponder? And the first thing that I'd, I'd like for us to do in this time is to think about in our own lives, how do we prioritize worshiping and seeking Jesus? Because I don't know about you, but Christmas in my own life is a very busy time of year. It's this crazy season where there's a lot going on. And it's not just like the commercial aspects of Christmas about buying gifts and, you know, doing all those sorts of things, but also it's about good things. It's about, like, attending worship services about the King, and it's about hanging out with family and spending time with them. These are all great things, but all of that activity can lead me to miss what's really going on in my time of actually personally worshiping the king, and that's why I think our forefathers had this really great idea of not to make Christmas a day, but to make it a season, where we have the season of Advent leading up to the importance of the birth, and then we celebrate the birth. And then the really cool thing is that a lot of those activities kind of fizzle out, and then we have time to continue to reflect on how do we pursue Jesus in worship in our own lives after the Christmas day. And this culminates in this idea of the day of Epiphany. And so what I'm asking you to do is maybe consider this week 
this second part of the 12 days of Christmas, how you can slow down, seek God and worship him, make seeing him, seeking him a priority. The Magi went on this adventure to seek Jesus, and maybe God is stirring in your heart this morning, maybe to make a different sort of plan to go and meet with him during the week. The second thing is, is how is your heart reacting to Jesus right now? Like I said early on, this passage is like a mirror, and it, shows, it can show us what's going on in our heart. Are you hostile to Christ this morning? Are you indifferent to him? Do you not have time for him because you've got a lot of other things going on? Or are you seeking Jesus? Are you worshiping him? Then the, the last point that I want us to consider is the fact that worship is costly, that when we obey, there's always a cost to it. And that's certainly illustrated in, in, the, in the life of the wise men, where they went on a very expensive journey. It was not cheap to travel like that. And then they prepared these gifts that were kingly gifts out of their own pocket to lay at the feet of Jesus. Today, God may be asking you to do something hard or difficult to make a sacrifice. And there are many in this room, and there are many at the Next Steps area out on the mall who would want to help you and encourage you in your response to obedience to Jesus, whether that's you need to make a commitment to follow him, or maybe that's you have never obeyed him in baptism. You've been following him for a long time, but you've never said, I I haven't stepped out in faith in baptism. Maybe God's calling you to serve him in some capacity in ministry. Maybe you need to turn from a sin. Maybe you just need prayer. You need someone to... um, to pray with you, or maybe you just have questions that need answered. Guys, I want to tell you this, we would love to help you. And so this morning as we consider a time of response, and if you need to respond in a way, there are people in this room um, to help you, and we would love to help you. And finally, remember I said in the beginning that epiphany, the word literally means to reveal. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he came to earth, as he revealed himself as the Savior King for the entire world. And the wise men understood that they were in the presence of God and they worshiped Jesus in his home. And today we're going to have the opportunity to worship Jesus at his table as we're going to partake in an ordinance that we as the church like to call the Lord's Supper. You may have heard it referred to as communion. But as we do that, it's the opportunity that we have to worship Jesus for who he is. So I'm going to invite Ben uh, to come up after I pray and then those who are going to be assisting in the Lord's Supper to come up as well. But would you join me in prayer and just consider your own response to the Word of God this morning? God, we thank you for uh, that, that you are just our Savior, God. And we know that, that all of us in this room have traveled to be in here this morning for maybe a variety of reasons. We certainly didn't travel as far as the wise men, but we came here seeking you. And so, God, help us in our own lives to prioritize you so that you will be the king of our lives always. May your words continue to speak through us throughout this week. And Spirit, if anybody needs to respond to you today, let them not be indifferent or hostile towards you, God, but give them the courage to step out in faith and obedience. And Jesus, today, we ask, Lord, if it's your will, God, that you would bring someone to life in Christ. God, that you would save someone even this morning. Jesus, we thank you for this time of being with you and your word. Help us to know you better. Help us to love you better. Help us to be your people and build your kingdom here on earth. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.